And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Sean Rittenauer. Dr. Rittenauer is professor of economics at Grove City College. It's a Christian liberal arts college in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And he's also the author of the book, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View. Dr. Rittenauer, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me again. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Last time we talked about the free market and what, what is a free market. And I believe you uh, helped us understand that what we have is not truly a free market, but a manipulated market. Yes. Yeah, I, I kind of uh, I think a good way to think about it is, is a hampered market economy. Um, we definitely do have uh, a market. Uh, it's certainly not the case where the government absolutely uh, controls everything or absolutely uh, owns, say, all of the, the means of production. Uh, we've got private ownership of the means of production to a certain extent, and that allows for uh, a broad voluntary exchange, and so we don't have we don't have a, a complete, say, communist style market for sure. Uh, but at the same time, the the government intervenes in a whole host of ways through price controls, subsidies, income redistribution, um, uh, manipulation, intervention in the monetary system, manipulation of the money supply, and all kinds of things. So that the the market that we do have is um, we could say less effective, less successful than it, than it would be without it, and so it's, it's hampered. It's, it's kept from doing what a market could do if it was the result of pure voluntary exchange. Okay, that's helpful. Today we want to talk a little bit about the um, central bank. Uh, last time together we said we get, we got to get back together again and talk about the, uh, the Federal Reserve. Right. And um, I don't know, to me, I'm just a normal guy on the street, I guess, and and uh, it's it seems so mysterious. It's hard to understand. Get your hands around. Um, I found an old quote, and I'll start off with this. Uh, it comes from um, President Wilson. He said that the Federal Reserve provides a currency which expands as it is needed and contracts when it is not needed. Uh, and that the power to direct this system of credits is put into the hands of a public board of disinterested officers of the government itself, unquote. And even that confuses me. So (laughs) maybe you can help us understand what is this central bank, what's its role, and I guess it's equivalent to the Federal Reserve, right? Yeah, uh, our our central bank is the Federal Reserve System. uh, central bank is of any in any economy is considered uh, well what makes it a central bank is that it has the uh, monopoly right to issue uh, money to create money um, you know you and I if uh, we decided to start printing up dollars in our basement and it said you know a US Federal Reserve note and we start printing them up and try to use them and if we were caught we would be uh you know we would be uh, arrested and imprisoned for um for counterfeiting sure. if uh the federal reserve does it that's considered monetary policy 
<laughs> and and so the the the, the 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 central bank is the uh, bank that has the monopoly right, the privilege, special privilege from the government to issue currency. And our the United States central bank is the the Federal Reserve system. And um, it's very interesting. I'm glad that you you mentioned that that quote from uh, Woodrow Wilson because it's it's somewhat. Um, indicative and in some sense almost quaint uh, to think that well as you know the bank as it was originally conceived was supposed to be just a bank that basically just facilitated try to make things uh, the bank's going to smooth things out uh, economically by simply giving people enough money uh, just enough money to meet their demand, and then if demand for money flagged, well, then then they would take take money out of the system, um, and that that was sort of that, the the bank was sold that way to the public, and 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 the 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 official documents by by people who were connected to the bank, uh, who promoted the bank. Uh, there's a number of monetary commissions that were created to try to uh, essentially. Uh, create goodwill in the public to sort of convince people that we need a central bank. Um, that's how that's how this was all sold to them. The idea that we have we have had certain significant economic crises, um, you know, uh, really that were inherent um, in the national banking system. Uh, in the in the middle of the civil war. There was the National Banking Act, and it kind of created a, a three-tier banking system. The more powerful banks were located in, in cities such as New York City, Chicago, etc. And then uh, there were other municipalities that, that were not the central reserve city banks, but they were still significant. And then there was a whole host, of course, of what you could just call country banks that were spread out throughout small towns and in, in, in villages throughout the country. And you had this three-tiered system, all of it based upon the money and, and at that time the gold that was in the vaults of the Central Reserve City Banks. We also had fractional reserve banking like we do now so that banks were free to actually issue more money than, say, more paper dollars than they had gold in their vaults to redeem those paper dollars. If everybody redeemed them all at once, you'd have a bank run and the bank would fail. That's why we had a lot of bank failures, um, for instance, in the, in the great in the early years of the Great Depression. So we had that system that would it was very much a system where there was incentives for the banks to inflate the money supply uh, for people who were borrowing that new money to invest often uh, in, in, in unsound ways, and then when the chickens come home to roost, certainly these businesses would fail, and they couldn't pay their loans back, and then there would be a financial panic. And so um, it was the financial panic of uh, 1907 that really uh, seemed to really shake Wall Street significantly and created this sort of political motivation to, to, to do something better. And instead of going to uh, a free market, like we could, like, you know, like we do with a whole host of other uh, products, they decided to centralize the, the 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 money market, if you will, the monetary industry even more, and they created the central bank. And and as you pointed out, the original the original um, rhetoric supporting the bank was simply we need the central bank to provide what they called an elastic currency. And just like Wilson said, that was a currency that was the 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 money supply was going to just increase when demand increased. And then it would decrease when demand uh, 
for money decreased. Uh, even at the time, though, it was recognized that, come on, um, the, the way politicians are, uh, there are going to be demands by the government on the central bank so that uh, what's going to happen is we're going to get all expansion and no contraction. And that's essentially the history of the Federal Reserve. Well, that's very helpful. Um, something came into my mind as I was hearing you talk about this is that um, on the side of the, the public, um, whatever is used to um, as money, I guess, um, the public has to perceive that entity as, as having worth, whether it's gold or paper or barter or whatever, it seems. Yes. Yes, that's right. That uh, for something to be money, I mean, money, uh, by definition, is what we call the general medium of exchange. So it is the one good that is traded for all other goods. Right? So if we go and go try to go uh, grocery shopping, and we stop uh, on the way to, uh, to, to fill up with gasoline, we buy our gasoline with money. And then we go to the grocery store, we pay for our groceries with money. On the way home, maybe we stop and uh, have, uh, have a bite to eat at the local diner. We pay for our bill with money. And so money is, is the, 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 uh, the go-between for all of our transactions, right? Um, I, I, we all go to work. We all do different, have different uh, vocations. We get paid an, an income and salary in the form of money, and then we take that money and buy other things that we want. Right? And so, the money is a medium of exchange. Now, what what uh, people use as a medium of exchange could be could be. You know, essentially, it's whatever they decide. It's whatever they decide to use. And historically, um, sort of society is evolved so that um, you know over time they uh, used gold and silver as their as their medium of exchange um, now different societies at different historical periods use different things in ancient Greece they use cattle um, Native Americans uh, some of some tribes used wampum shells um, in in the early days uh, our colonial era uh, there were certain uh, times when certain parts of the uh, colonies were using uh, tea, blocks of tea. Sometimes they were using uh, certain quantities of tobacco as as uh, medium exchange. But but over time, uh, people voluntarily uh, chose through a process of voluntary exchange to use different quantities of uh, silver and gold, and that was that was what they chose to to uh, to use as money. And even even paper money, even paper banknotes originally were uh, pieces of paper that were sort of a financial document, if you will, that gave the holder of that note the right to claim a certain amount of gold or silver on demand when they took it back to the bank. So paper notes really were money originally money substitutes, and it was only after people got used to using the you know trading the paper dollars instead of the physical gold and silver. It was only after that had happened for you know decades, if if not in some places centuries, then the government was able to come in and sever the tie between gold, actual physical gold and silver and 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 the, and the paper and the paper uh, the paper money. Yeah. Now, what about this paper money? Um, it has to be printed. Yes. And like you pointed out, I I, I can't just willy nilly print it in my basement. Right. Uh, it's got to be printed by a, by the authorized, uh, uh, in this case, the Federal Reserve. Um, how do they decide when to print more money? It, it seems like if if they got some dollar bills that are that are 
uh, all messed up and they're about ripped up and that sort of thing. It's it's okay to to replace those, you know, one for one. But sure. But it seems like they do a lot more than just that. Well, you know, definitely. That's that's the least. I mean, that's the that's sort of the uh, the, the negligible part of their job. Um, you know, I, I, I'd mentioned that uh, you know early on when the Fed was originally created in 1913, it was sold simply as a um, as a bank necessary to provide an elastic currency. Um, incidentally, uh, soon after that, because of because of this. This, this understanding, this is what, how the Fed is going to operate. Uh, the year later, uh, the comptroller of the currency declared that you know, financial panics, because of the Fed, financial panics are, are, are mathematically impossible. In other words, we're not going to have any more panics. Right? Well, of course, that was, that was very, uh, was very uh, optimistic, shall we say, to say the least. Um, and, and you find over the years, over the decades, the Fed itself uh, sort of took on the mantle of more and more uh, more and more uh, goals, if you will. Uh, by 1920, for instance, the Fed was saying, well, we have to, we're not just here to, prov- to, to provide financial stability, we're here to provide price stability. So we don't want prices getting too high, prices getting too low. Um, by, um, and in fact, in, in, by 1948, uh, the Fed chairman were saying that the Federal Reserve is absolutely indispensable for managing stable prices in an economy without depressions. And in other words, Free people engaging in exchange are not able to to negotiate uh, uh, prices and, and 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 voluntarily so that prices don't fluctuate in wild crazy in wild crazy ways. In other words, without the Fed, without the Fed, we would have price price changes that are that are just they're so volatile it would be destructive. Um, and then, so by say 1964, we have the Fed embracing the idea that the goal of the Fed is to provide for full-fledged macroeconomic stability, stability for the entire social economy, so that it's the Fed's job to guarantee that we have high employment, uh, reduced business cycles, increased standards of living. In other words, so without the Fed, the economy is going to go down the drain. Right? And then, of course, after after World War II. Um, we find that they start getting very uh, so-called hawk-like in their rhetoric against inflation, like the Fed needs to protect us from inflation. Never mind that the Fed is actually the engine of inflation. They're the ones creating all the money that causes inflation. Um, and then, in, of course, famously, Ben Bernanke, uh, the most recent uh, Fed chairman before our current Fed Chairman Janet Yellen, in 2003, uh, successfully convinced us we need the Fed to protect us from deflation. Right? We have to, the Fed has to protect us from falling prices. And so, over time, the Fed itself has sort of absorbed a larger and larger and larger role for itself, well, in its own mind, but certainly, more importantly, in the minds of the masses. So more and more people actually are convinced, uh, as even economists who should know better, are convinced that, well, without the Fed, the whole the whole economy could could go could go screaming off the tracks, right? And so, um, you know, now because of this this in, in essence this this vision that well if we if we're not right there always paying attention always uh, pressing the monetary levers in the right way uh, we could get high unemployment uh, another another massive uh, recession et cetera et cetera uh, we need to make sure that we're creating the right amount of money and so. 
the 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 replacing of dollar bills as they were out that's that's like that's negligible what what they really do more than anything is not even print paper dollars they create money by creating uh numbers in uh bank accounts and checking accounts and so they they create money out of thin air uh, by essentially creating numbers in their account, buying up uh, treasury bonds in the bond market, and then that new money is injected into uh, it finds its way into bank reserves. Bank reserves then can use, uh, banks can use those new reserves to then create even more money uh, out of thin air ex nihilo. Um, and then loan it out to people who are borrowing money for houses, borrowing money for businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And so what the Fed does is it tries to, um, right now, trying to maintain some constant rate of price inflation. They also target uh, short-term uh, interest rates, and they're presently trying to keep those interest rates extremely low, artificially low, and uh, you know, in, in the hopes of stimulating investment and stimulating and stimulating the economy. Okay. Well, that that's a lot to chew on, and um, I, I appreciate um, what you're saying. Um, the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve we're talking about, is that a government entity or a private corporation or both? Uh, I would say it, it's really it's really both. I would say it's, it's quasi-governmental. Um, a lot of people, I mean, whenever I write about the Fed and I talk about government money manipulation, I usually get somebody, several people, in fact, will say, wait a minute, this is not a government agency. This is a private corporation run for the bankers, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say technically that is correct, right, that the, the Federal Reserve – uh, the, the shares, uh, the, the Federal Reserve is owned by its shareholders, and the shareholders are the banks that participate in it. So, in that sense, yes, it's a private bank. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, all of the uh, the governors um, and, and the chairman, the, the chairman of the board, uh, like Janet Yellen, for instance. Well, first of all, the bank is chartered by the government, right? So the, the, the bank is chartered by the United States government. The Board of Governors are all um, approved by Congress. And, to, and therefore, from the very, well, almost from the beginning, there is a very close symbiotic relationship between uh, the Fed and, and, and the federal government and the tre- Treasury Department. Um, you know, uh, Wilson, again, I think was, was wildly, overly optimistic about how independent the Federal Reserve is actually going to be. Because very, very short, I mean, it wasn't, at least by the mid-1920s, the Fed was clearly interacting in... Uh, in financial markets to keep interest rates artificially low. Well, why do they have to do that? Why do they have to keep interest rates low? They keep interest rates low primarily, well, for twofold reasons. One, to try to stimulate the economy, yes, but secondly, to help facilitate borrowing by the government. Because any time when the government goes into uh, the vulnerable funds market, they need to borrow money from people's savings, that's going to push interest rates up. And so everybody, you know, both both the Treasury Department and people in the Fed recognize that, um, and in fact, over the years, several uh, Federal Reserve chairmen kind of uh, uh, voiced frustration that they know that in some sense they're carrying water for the Treasury Department because the, they, they, they felt pressure 
from the federal government uh, to keep uh, interest rates low, to help facilitate borrowing by the government. And so there is this, this close, uh, close relationship. In fact, uh, at one point, uh, sort of every now and then, uh, amongst uh, both uh, Fed officials and uh, the Treasury Department officials, you know, they'll, they'll sort of let their, let their guard down. And at one point, uh, Arthur Burns, who was uh, uh, the chairman of the, the Fed back oh, several decades ago, said um, in, a, in an interview, sort of in exasperation, said, look, we have to do what the government wants, because if we don't, we'll lose our independence. <laughs> well, this is fascinating. <laughs> Today we're talking with Dr. Sean Rittenauer. He's professor of economics at Grove City College, author of the book Foundations of Economics, A Christian View. Now, Dr. Rittenauer, um, this is an interesting question that's been playing through my mind, and that is, suppose, um, suppose we reach the point where we realize, wow, our financial system really is in need of repair. And personally, I feel it's there already. Oh, for sure. Uh, um, suppose we wanted to design an honest system based on um, just simply the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, what would a godly economic system look like, and how stable may it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I guess I would preface my remarks by simply saying that, that, that there, are, there are differences of opinion on this. So uh, what you're going to get from me is just one man's opinion. Um, I hope, hopefully, it, it, I mean, it is based on uh, reflection uh, and, and based on, uh, you know, some, uh, what should one say, Try an attempt to understand biblical principles as they relate to the ethics of property and also, you know, applying those ethics to the banking system. So my opinion, I, I would say, is not completely uninformed. But on the other hand, there are there are Christians that have different views on this. But oh, sure. Guess what, what I would say is that um, in, in the first place, I, I I really I believe that the scripture scripture teaches us that all of us, all people, uh, should be secure in their property. Right? The, the the prohibitions against theft, the prohibitions against fraud, the prohibition against moving landmark barriers, the prohibitions in scripture against uh, holding wages back. All of that is, is speaks to the ethic of private property, and this is recognized by you know some of the some of the towering theologians. Um, uh, certainly, uh, well, not even in America, but people like Charles Hodge. If you look at his systematic theology, he sees, he calls the, the commandment against uh, stealing uh, as enshrining the divine right to property. Um, R.L. Dabney also is excellent on the issue of, of, of private property in general. Um, uh, other Christian thinkers in the, 1900, uh, the 1800s, like Francis Wayland, is, is, was extremely sound on this. And then going forth, in, and then, and of course, even uh, Herman Bovink also is, was quite good on, on the issue of private property. So, in general. So this was sort of, uh, I would say, a majority, a majority report uh, amongst uh, Christian th- uh, theologians, um, conservative uh, biblical scholars. So um, what does that entail for the money system? Well, it, for everything else, it implies that people have the right to use their property to engage in uh, production and in exchange. And I would say it would be the same thing for, for, for a monetary system. We, we would not have a single entity that's given the right to have the monopoly issue 
by government of of uh, issuing currency. Um, we would have a, a money. Uh, a commodity or commodities used as money that people voluntarily choose and accept. And then if, if banks do issue, say, bank notes, then those bank notes, every single one of them should be absolutely redeemable on demand and redeemable in a way that even if everybody redeemed them all at the same time, everybody would get their money back. I, I personally advocate what's called 100% reserve banking so that the banks are not allowed to say, create an issue uh, $200 with a bank notes if they only have, or, or, or checking deposits for that matter, checking accounts. Uh, they're not able to issue $200 if they only have $100 worth of gold or silver in their reserves to back up those dollars. Yeah, you'd never have a bank run then. That's exactly right. I mean, precisely. And, and, and so and the two things flow from that, that if you wouldn't have the bank run, and secondly, banks would be curtailed from artificially creating, creating credit out of thin air, because that, that's really the way current banks increase the money supply. They create dollars out of thin air, and then they loan them to people, because the only reason that the banks do create money out of thin air is because they want to make money off of it. How do they make money? They make money on the interest that people pay them uh, for loans that are extended to them. And so what... Uh, commercial banks would not be able to do is just create money out of thin air and loan it to people. So if they loaned money, they'd be able to loan money only to the extent that, that the bank itself saved out of its earnings or other people loan money to the bank in the form of buying certificates of deposits or time deposits or whatever, and then they would be able to loan those savings out. Right? And so that also not only would you don't have bank runs, but you also would uh, eliminate uh, the monetary business cycle. You'd, you'd eliminate the kind of things that led us to the Great Depression or the things that led us to the financial meltdown of, 2000, of 2008. Yeah. Now, I'm looking at the clock, and I realize this is such a fascinating discussion. Uh, the time just flew away, Dr. Rittenauer. <laughs> we may have to have you back. Um, I, I would, I jokingly, uh, I'm suggesting maybe what we ought to do is create a new currency uh, coin and call it the Rittenauer. What do you think? <laughs> well, I, don't, I, I, I think we should call it something else. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Well, this has been wonderful, and uh, if our listeners would like to research further, the book that you've written, um, I imagine that that's uh, available on Amazon, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View? Yes, yes. All right, so we'd recommend that. And sure. Also, um, any uh, website address where they could go and study more? Um, I would recommend uh, the uh, the website for the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Oh, yes. Uh, that's M-I-S-E-S dot org. Um, an excellent book on this topic is called The Ethics of Money Production. It's, uh, it's authored by Guido Holtzman, and I believe the, the Mises Institute has, has that available as a PDF uh, for free. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure you could buy the hardback version for, for not very much. So uh, The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Holtzman is an excellent, uh, excellent uh, introduction to this whole topic. Well, that's wonderful, and uh, we'll try to put some of this info up on our website after this airs today, and uh, that way people can look it up further and also listen to the broadcast again as a podcast. Dr. Sean Rittenauer, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. The pleasure, pleasure's all mine. And, dear listener, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 